Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1830, and even more so in 1848, Europe was rocked by nationalist revolutionary movements that sought to assert individual freedom from despotic governments by separating their communities. Those revolutions failed, and many of their supporters fled to the United States. When the American Civil War broke out, what made some of those former political refugees fight for freedom with the North, while others identified with the cause of secession in the South? Join us for a transnational look at the Civil War with Niels Eichhorn, author of Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, the uh, pandemic annex thereof in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of ECU, East Carolina University, but not too far from it, uh, but not speaking for it, philosophically not, not close to it and not representing it, just speaking for myself as my guests will also do this evening. It is the middle of September 2020, and uh, the the news of the day that just, just came in this day, September 16th, was that the Civil War community yesterday lost one of its uh, giant figures, historian Ed Bars, who has guided more tours than the rest of us have thought about in in his long lifetime, uh, passed away yesterday. I'm sure most of you have heard Ed at some point, perhaps you've been fortunate enough to go on a tour 
guided by him. He was on this show uh, one time, probably should have been more than that, actually. Uh, if you have never had the opportunity to to see him and, and hear him and uh, learn from him, it's, it's unfortunate that that has passed. He was un- unmistakable in his delivery. He was a Marine Corps veteran from World War II who continued to uh, deliver like a drill sergeant his uh, to treat the charges he had on a, a bus tour, for example, like like boots at boot camp, but in a nice way. He knew everything uh, about every battlefield he went to. Uh, I joined him once. We, we did uh, a tour, I think it was for Blue Gray Education Society, many years ago in Kentucky, and we stopped at some really obscure places, and Ed just got everybody off the bus and said, well, I know what's around that next corner, and uh, knew where everything was and could tell us about it. It was truly remarkable. I saw him periodically. He would come to eastern North Carolina every year to give a talk in Rocky Mount, and from our initial meeting back in Kentucky, you know, I'd see him 15 years later, and he'd say, how's the Army of the Ohio doing? Uh, his memory was, was just phenomenal. He himself was, besides being a, the, the archetype of a Civil War tour leader, was at one time the chief historian of the National Park Service. He is uh, responsible for the discovery of the USS Cairo and the efforts to raise that ship from the Yazoo River. It's hard to, uh, he's written a lot of things that it's just hard to go, hard, hard not to go on, hard to stop talking about all the things he accomplished and all the people he impressed. If you, and I've had this experience and, and others I've spoken to have where you're leading a tour, say at Gettysburg, and then you hear his voice from a different bus and you just want to drop everything over and listen to him because he he was inimitable. So uh, our, our thoughts go out to his family and uh, uh, to the whole Civil War community on the, the passing of Ed Bars. In other news, the world continues its strange ways here in the middle of uh, 2020. The Big Ten has announced or sort of announced that they are going to play football after all this fall, which as much as a fan as I am of my alma mater, University of Michigan, uh, as a Michigan native, I paid a little attention to the Detroit Lions game last Sunday, and it reminded me how glad I was that there was no football yet this fall, as big a fan as I am of the sport. Uh, the the agony that it can bring is, is just... Uh, it's it's just it'd be just as well if they didn't play at all. ECU is going to play a ranked team in their opening game ten days from now, and the scoreboard may run out of numbers uh, as we get beat by two or three digits. It's just going to be bad. I'd just assume they didn't play at all this fall and let me spend the week in grading exams and enjoying that. But uh, they'll play. We'll see what happens. A quick thank you to everybody, uh, and I think I'm caught up on thanking you individually, but thank you to everyone who has donated to the scholarship fund in honor of Wade Dudley here at ECU. Wade was our 
Phi Alpha Theta faculty sponsor and a legendary instructor, uh, a, a long, long-time fixed-term professor in American history. He was also a, a good friend. He and I would play history simulation games with students on Friday afternoons when other things weren't too demanding. And he retired last spring, and in one of those unfair bits of life, uh, suffered an accident and uh, was taken from us a few weeks ago. So we are raising money for a cause he would certainly support uh, for the students at ECU. So if you can go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, look for the PayPal button, click the button, and send money. It will be donated to the Wade Dudley Scholarship if you send that money in this month of September 2020. And I'm real impressed and thankful for all the generous contribution contributions that have come in. But if you've never donated to the show because you think, hey, he's got a job, it's it's not necessary. It's still not necessary, but here's a chance to do so, express your appreciation and support a really uh, really good cause. While you're at impedimentsofwar.org, you can see who's coming up next. Next week, Mark Dunkelman comes back uh, for the possibly third time I've lost track. Uh, Mark is a good friend of the show, and he'll be talking about Amos Humiston at Gettysburg and other things. Mark has uh, his finger in many pies, and we'll find out what he's up to. On the 30th of September, 2020, there will not be a live show. It's exam grading day with the block schedule that ECU converted to this past summer with no warning, no advanced preparation time. Uh, we find that classes end on a Friday. The following Monday is Yom Kippur, so no activities. The next day is exam day. All the classes will have their final exam the same day. How they're going to avoid conflict, I have no idea. And then the next day is exam grading day, so no no show that day. And the following day is the start of classes for Block 2, so the amount of days to prepare Block 2 is zero. We'll see how that goes. Uh, enough about September 30th. After that, things get better. October 7th, Gary Gallagher will be here. You know who he is, and you'll want to read his new book. On the 14th, H.W. Brands has a book that's not out yet, coming out in October. It's about Abraham Lincoln and John Brown. It's called The Zealot and the Emancipator, in opposite order, I guess, for John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. So that's not out yet. I haven't seen it yet, but the advance notice is, is good enough for me. We'll have Professor Brands on the show. And on the 21st of October, David Dixon returns with his book, Radical Warrior, August Willich's Journey from German Revolutionary to Union General. Appropriate enough, uh, tonight's show will be talking about uh, German revolutionaries, but not Willich. We'll be talking about some different people, ones perhaps less familiar to you as they were to me, uh, so something to learn. Our guest tonight is Niels Eichhorn, and he has written a book about, uh, well, the title tells us, Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War. Professor Eichhorn, are you there? 
I am Blair. Thank you for having me, Gary. Hey, well, welcome to the show. Can can I call you Niels? Is that uh, appropriate? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. And, and did I pronounce your last name correctly? Uh, Icorn? Uh, sounded good, yeah. A lot okay, better well, than what try- I hear in the doctor's offices. <laughs> well, I, I can understand that. Now, you teach at uh, in Georgia? Yeah, I'm currently kind of adjuncting at a couple of schools in Georgia. Okay, so you have the... Uh, You've gotten the phrase, oh, you're not from around here, perhaps. Uh, yes. Which is uh, I, I get that here, too. Uh, but, uh, but we are glad you are here. Um, and let me ask quickly, how is your family doing? Is your, your soon-to-be new arrival uh, everything good, good with the family? Looks everything is good. We're kind of expecting it's probably about a month left until you arrive. Uh, we're Fair. we're ready, Crips ready, everything is going ready, and excited for this new chapter of our lives. Yeah. Yes. Is this Thank your you first asking. child? Uh, is first the first baby? This first baby, discounting the three dogs we have. Yes. Yeah, so, I, I shouldn't say this, but uh, other parents will will back me up. You know, it, your dogs are your babies, and then. A year from now, you will see them in the corner. What are their names again? Um, the the <laughs> the baby baby will take over, uh, but you'll enjoy yeah. it. I hope. Uh, uh, so I'm sure. Now, I you and I first started corresponding uh, in connection with HNet, the uh, yes, we history listserv, uh, HCIV War particularly, for the benefit of listeners who to whom HCIV War means nothing. Could you? Describe a little bit what that project is. Yeah, sure. Age Civil War is, or Age Civil War as it is officially called, is, um, it was a list server. It has become more of a kind of commons, they call it now, where you kind of, you post discussions, you comment. So it's not just anymore this kind of email going out to everybody and you email to the editor. And so it's a little bit more sophisticated, but we usually do like, uh, book reviews on Mondays. Uh, COVID has derailed some of that with the um, books not being mailed out as easily and quickly and stuff. Um, we do grad student interviews. If you're a grad student working on a Civil War topic, we kind of give you a forum to introduce your your topic and kind of talk about what, what you do. Um, I'm very much involved with kind of what, what you're doing. You're kind of written and occasionally video um, interviews with authors kind of introducing their new books, kind of where they fit with the scholarship. And so we're, we're, we're trying to do a lot of different things with a civil war and kind of introduce different aspects of the civil war as well. I think it's a, a great idea, great effort. It's been going for a long time and I'm showing my age when I call it a list serve. That's back from the '90s, probably. It was originally called that. But the the idea, the the best thing about it, what makes it different from a Facebook group you could join, uh, even a closed Facebook group, is that you have to. The membership is vetted. Uh, it, it's a professional list or professional uh, commons. Uh, it, it, at least it was yeah. in, when I joined it. Is that still the case? 
Yes, um, we still would like when people register to kind of indicate something about where they work and kind of indicate a little bit of their professional, but um, we're very open that, I mean, if if you're kind of just interested in civil war and you want to join, you can. It's, it's, it's not just academics that contribute to it. But the, the advantage of all this is there is no bloviating, there are no arguments about Slavery wasn't the cause of the war. Uh, no. <laughs> they, it, it's it's restricted to. I mean, the the communication is serious and meaningful and useful. When I get my H Civil War digest every day or so, I open it knowing it'll be something worth my time to take a look at. Uh, yes, definitely. And given how and much social media is out. Yes, and yeah, go we're ahead. definitely not kind of the. You do have like H War is very. Um, they do like what they call a hand grenade of the month, and sometimes those can get rather contentious. Um, we're not doing that yet. No, I, I, I'm happy not because there's enough hand grenades on the internet as it is that I'm, I'm happy to know when yes. I open that that email it will be a book review, an interview with a grad student, or a query. Somebody will say, "I'm researching topic yes. X, Y, Z. Does anybody know sources about this?" And, uh, yeah. you know, then we, people help each other. So it's very nice. Um, yeah. Well, your work, Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War, is our topic tonight. And we've been chit-chatting here to the point where we're going to take a short break and come back and dive in. But uh, uh, well, the first question I'm going to ask, so you can think about it over the break, is what what is separatism uh, as you use it in your title so we'll find out when we come back and talk more with niels eichhorn author of liberty and slavery european separatists southern secession and the american civil war i'm jerry prokopovich and this is civil war talk radio Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. 
It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Niels Eichhorn, author of Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War. Uh, so, Niels, the subtitle says European Separatists. Uh, what does that mean? Who are these people? What is separatism? That's a great question. And... Not an easy one, obviously. Um, <laughs> so let me start with. <laughs> let me. It, it took a little bit of kind of figuring it out in the process of kind of how am I going to write this book, and the the start here is it is a form of nationalism, and I'm I'm defining nationalism very on a very basic level that we're talking here about a a community that shares some form of identity, whether this is linguistic, whether this is cultural, whether this is historic. I'm even so far going as to kind of a, a racial, ethnic identity, which you have much more often in Europe. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that oftentimes when it comes to, in Europe to this kind of how do you how do you create this new nation state? We're all familiar, I suppose, with kind of the German nation state or the Italian nation state. But you oftentimes had like these different identities within these states that felt that this overarching nation state was not, or this overarching state, I should say, was not fully um, encompassing them. Um, and that is especially true when you deal with some of these larger empires like the Austrian Empire or the Russian Empire or the British Empire, where you have, let's say, the Irish having this kind of Catholic but also somewhat Protestant identity. They see themselves as separate from the English. They, they have their own kind of ways and traditions, so they don't feel at home within the United Kingdom. So this is the moment where their national identity sees itself in conflict with the overarching English United Kingdom identity. And this moment, in most cases in 1848, with regard to the book, starts to break, or is at least trying to break the states apart and create some new independent entity. And... That's why I'm looking at separatism, this kind of desire to break away from a state because that state does not acknowledge, respect, and in many cases oppresses the identity of the people that are being, that are wanting that independence. So you mentioned Ireland um, and you mentioned Austrian Empire. Uh, Hungary is another example 
within that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you write about Poland within the Russian Empire and Prussia. Yeah. Everybody gets a piece of Poland. Uh, and most particularly, uh, Schleswig-Holstein, which is not as well known uh, as the others. Uh, that yeah. you, you spend quite a bit of time on that. Where is it and, and why is it significant? Well, um, that is in large part because that was sort of my dissertation topic. Um, mm. When I first started kind of getting interested in the Civil War, I got interested in a guy by the name of Rudolf Schleiden. And Schleiden was Bremen's representative in Washington at the start of the Civil War. And I kind of wanted to maybe do something biographical on him. And it, it turned out, well, biography, dissertation, they don't really work well together, at least for my mm-hmm. advisors, it was sort of that, no, we shouldn't do that. Um, but in the process, I kind of was like, well, he is this revolutionary in 1848. How does this influence how he looks at the Civil War? So this was kind of the linchpin on where some of this material was coming from. Now, Schleswig-Holstein is, when you think of North Germany and Denmark, it's the base of Denmark and the top part there of Germany. It's like Hamburg, to the north of Hamburg is Holstein, and then above it is Schleswig. Um, this, this region has a very difficult history, uh, and Lord Palmerston, in the course of the 1860s, said one time, and it holds very true, but only three people understood the Schleswig-Holstein question. One of them is dead. The other one is Matt, which was supposedly a German professor. And the third one himself has forgotten all about it. And I think that really kind of encapsulates how difficult this subject matter is. So the uh, you mentioned this was initially related to a dissertation topic. Uh, I just want to ask this before going further. In your Acknowledgements. You point out when you initially got started uh, in learning about the American Civil War uh, seriously, you were steered away by advisors from doing a military topic. Why? Why did they do that? Do you think? Well, in, in part, it sort of was on both ways. That uh, my first first teacher as an undergraduate, when I took Civil War history and had to do a research paper. He kind of, I, I, was an, I was a freshman at the time and kind of was like, so Terry, Terry Beckenbaugh, what, what should I do? What would be a good topic to research? And he kind of was like, well, why don't you look at German-U.S. relations to kind of build on my lingua, language skills, kind of my background in Germany? And as a result, it kind of was like, oh, yeah, this is actually interesting. And nothing had been written in English on this, so I kind of was like, there's a dissertation topic right here. So that's sort of how I kind of, through asking what would be a good topic for a research paper, I came to a professional project that has been occupying me for pretty much my entire career. Well, it is and interesting. Why, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was like, no, please why, go not ahead. Military, why not military history? I... I Let's just say, like we always like to say, I kind of hope that they were thinking that, you know, military history is not the most fashionable of um, subject matters. It's not the one where you can find easy employment in these days. That, that is true within the academy, even now, uh, perhaps less so now, but uh, there was certainly a time when it was very much out of fashion. 
Uh, which is ironic yeah. given that with readers and listeners to this program and others, it's very much in fashion. But uh, but there you go. So these these separatist movements in Europe in, in 1830, then especially 1848 in places like Ireland, Hungary, uh, Poland, and so on, they uh, the, the reason we're talking about them here on Civil War Talk Radio is because you characterize what happens in the United States uh, not just in 1861, but also with the nullification crisis in 1832, and the Free Soil Movement in 1848, you suggest there are separatist movements or a separatist undercurrent in American history as well. Is, is that a fair yeah. characterization? Yes, I definitely think so. And I think you could even go further back. I mean, the American Revolution is in large sure. part a separatist movement, considering they're breaking away from Greater Great Britain. I mean, you have it in the War of 1812, where New England is talking about it. And in large part, I kind of included in, 18, in the 1830 and 1848 chapters the South, because in part, I didn't just think of this as moments in time when a revolution takes place and when we're trying to create an independent state, but I'm also thinking in terms of evolution that at times the revolutionary movements aren't quite ready yet when the moment arrives in other places to take it on and say, okay, the French do it, let's, uh, we should do it as well. And there's this kind of evolution that takes place, and I think that's what you're seeing in the South that where... Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, when they did the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, they kind of lay this foundation intellectually of how can the South see itself different from the rest of the country? How can we create this state sovereignty argument that then Calhoun elaborates on more fully in 18, uh, 1832, and then very much with um, in the 18th in the early 18, in 1850, when you have the compromise debates going on after the war with Mexico, you get the National Convention, which is, again, thinking in terms of maybe it is time for us to break away. So I think this is, this is an evolution where you see, by 1861, South Carolina being so fed up that they're saying, okay, we have enough. And that's, I think, the same that you see in Hungary, where the Hungarians eventually say, okay, we have suffered so much under Austrian oppression that we're done. We're going to break away and declare our own state. So the, uh, what this does, by, by it's not a huge leap to associate secession in 1860-61 with these secession movements, but by tying it in with uh, what's happening in Europe in 1830 and the United States in 1832 – this really brings a transnational uh, lens to the whole American Civil War. You may, another point you make uh, early on is that it, we haven't really looked at the Civil War in this transnational light very much. Americans tend to look at it as this is our war, and you know, it's therefore it's the best war, uh, and we're done. By putting it in this light, it's a challenge to American exceptionalism. You're, you're suggesting other nations go through similar things of, of challenging the nation state and, and independent 
independence movements breaking out in small areas. Was that part of the, the goal from the start to, to look at this as a, a challenge to exceptionalism? It definitely was. Um, and I'm, I'm not shy on saying it that way because I do, um, I, I, I often feel, and we kind of talked about it early on when you kind of were like, you know, how often did you get asked of like, you know, what are you doing here? Um, that I do bring a certain outsider perspective to the study of the Civil War. Being German, I, I very late, you can say, encountered the Civil War in, in school and kind of through movies and then through my own reading. So there was, I was fascinated by it, but I also have, again, this kind of outsider perspective. And there was this moment where I kind of, I like to read other stuff. I like to read British history. I like to read German history. I'm kind of right now doing a lot of Latin American history. And it's, I'm looking at what happens in the U.S. and I'm kind of like, well, but something similar happens in Germany. Something similar happens in Ireland. And sort of, I think in part being the outsider really gave me the ability to kind of look at it a little bit differently. But at the same time, um, as you kind of say, it's sort of, it's, it's a nice wake up call every now and then to say, well, you know what? The American Civil War is not that exceptional. Um, I, even for like, since you've mentioned your viewer, your listeners are more military history interested. I mean, when you think about it, the American Civil War is nice, is nice, is not the bloodiest conflict in this moment in time. You have the 20 million dead in China as a result of the Taiping Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, 30% potentially of the Paraguayan population perishes in the Triple Alliance War. And even the Crimean War is more bloody than the Civil War, based on the amount of time that fighting takes place. So it's, it's a really kind of, it's, it's, you think of the Civil War in this kind of like, it's this big war that oh, shatters the world all over, and the world looks to it. It's, it's, it's very insular in thinking, I think. And I, I don't I, think a lot of people at the time would have thought in those terms. No, that's a point you make. And, and you, you have a lot of evidence where you show Americans in the 1860s invoking European examples of movements for freedom uh, or movements for independence on behalf of both sides, uh, both North and South. When yeah. This just reminds me in... I think it was mid-1990s, late 90s, when uh, the British historian Paddy Griffith uh, and others began to challenge the idea that the the rifled musket and the invention of the mini-ball revolutionized Civil War tactics. And he argued, no, it didn't really make a difference. It was just another Napoleonic War. The response to that, to an argument advanced in a, you know academic journals, uh, brought this very impassioned response from a lot of uh, American Civil War enthusiasts who, who were annoyed that a, a Brit was trying to interpret our war and uh, objected to the idea that it wasn't completely unique and different. Uh, that has faded away, I think, to a large extent, and I think the rifle musket thesis has been uh, pretty well beaten down by people like Earl Hess and others, but it was striking at the time just how emotional the response was to the challenge to an exceptionalist interpretation. I don't know if you've encountered that much, but I hope your book has great sales and you get a lot of abusive email as a result. 
that, that would be a good Thankfully. sign. <laughs> Thankfully, I have not had a lot of hate mail, so I'm kind of glad about that. Now, that but may I, in part I, be, you know, let me just say, in part that may be because your your topic is not familiar to every reader, uh, what you talk about in 1830, 1848, and so on. And really, the heart of what you're writing about are the European revolutionaries who, after the failure of their separatist movements, come to the United States. So... Uh, I want to talk about that in our next segment. We have a minute left in this one. Um, off the top, who are some of the people that you you found most interesting to uh, uh, among these these political refugees? Um, well, personally, I do like Rudolf Schleiden because I kind of have this very close personal connection that I've built over the years. Studying mm-hmm. him, I, I, John Mitchell is a just perfect character because he is just outside of everything you expect. Um, but then I also like Adam Gorofsky, the Polish revolutionary. So maybe we can talk about them a little bit in the next segment. Absolutely. That, that Mitchell, uh, I was not much familiar with him. Uh, not too long ago we had... Uh, uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on not having names in front of me. Uh, the the book about the the Fenians and, and invasions when oh, the Irish Chris invaded Klein. Canada. Exactly. Yes. Chris Klein. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, from his his book, uh, he has a lot to say about Mitchell and uh, Thomas Maher and others, uh, whom you also describe. And it, yeah, those are fascinating characters, and they bring such different. Uh, they come from Ireland, they come from a freedom movement in Ireland, and they come to the United States, and they go in radically different directions. So that's what we'll talk about in the next section. We'll take a short break now. We'll come back and talk more. Our guest is Niels Eichhorn. He is the author of Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. 
The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Niels Eichhorn. He is the author of Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War. The the crux of your your analysis here, Niels, is the question, why do these people who fought for independence for their home communities within a larger nation state, like Ireland within the British Empire, uh, come to America and then go different ways? Uh, Thomas Maher becomes a, a, you know, the leader of the, Iron, the Irish Brigade, as, as listeners know, where Patrick Claiborne goes and fights for the South. Uh, or John Mitchell, what makes one? What makes them go different ways? That is an excellent question, and it was one that I was fighting with a long time because I kind of was like, "How do you explain this?" And the more I dug into their writings, the more I kind of became aware that it was about that ideological baggage that they brought with them from Europe. And that's in part why you have these chapters on 1830 and 1848 in the book, mm-hmm. that they're looking like Marr and the Hungarian. They're looking at the southern states, and what they're seeing is an aristocracy, a planter aristocracy that looks very similar to the aristocracies that they fought in Europe. And they're looking at this aristocracy and they see a group of politicians who are trying to impose their will as a minority on the rest of the country. Kind of that caricature you have where they're trying to force slavery down the throat of the country. And that's the perception they have. This is not for them about the enslaved people in the South. This is about Southerners trying to enslave the country by eliminating political, social, economic rights. Um, so that's the northern side. On the southern side, on the other hand, if you have, like, John Mitchell, for example, and even, like, the one or two Polish individuals that I've found, you, you're having a group of individuals who are looking at the north as an oppressive imperial power that is trying to force its will on the southern states, just like what the Austrians were doing in Hungary, what the Russians were doing in Poland, what the British were doing in Ireland. So 
for them, the notion of self-determination that these southern states are embracing is exactly what they fought for in Europe, and therefore it is natural in their mind to side with this slave-holding new state. It, it's just really an interesting question of what it is they're able to overlook. But you also point out it has a lot to do with the definition of slavery, that that word, yeah. and you know Bernard Balin talks about this in the American Revolution 50 years ago, 70 years ago now, uh, that they use that word frequently in political discourse in the 18th and 19th centuries, not just for literal chattel bondage, but slavery has a much broader meaning, doesn't it? Yes, and I think that's especially where it's like, it was very difficult because I kind of was like, can I find something of this nature in you in the in the southern states where mm-hmm. you look at the Irish, especially in the early stages leading up to 1830, kind of the Catholic emancipation, you do see kind of this perception of enslavement, the Hungarians use it. Um, In the German, it sometimes gets a little difficult because you're looking at kind of the translation terms that you're looking at, um, because Mm -hmm. there it's sometimes Knechtschaft that is being used, which is not quite enslaved, but it's it's very similar because it relates to the serfdom aspect of slavery. but it was very difficult to find anything in the southern states with regard to that. And it's, it's, it is very much this kind of larger notion that this is not slavery as in chattel, as you say. It is about the forms of impression that because I don't have the political powers that somebody else has, because somebody else is infringing on my economic prosperity, therefore I'm an oppressed person. And effectively, I'm a slave. Yeah, it, it's quite a uh, it, it's quite a stretch, but but as, as you know, the the writing shows people took it very seriously. They they were not using it as a metaphor. They they they, they were quite serious about it. Let me ask you about Adam Gorowski, the Polish uh, revolutionary who comes to the United States. He has he does have a particularly interesting backstory. Um, what what did you find out about him? <laughs> uh, well, see, let me kind of paraphrase my answer there. One of the difficulties uh-huh. that I encountered in the book, and that relates both to, like, even to Claiborne, it relates to the Hungarians, is that it was at times difficult to find material on the background of these individuals. What specifically were they actually doing in, say, 1830? <laughs> I know that he was trying to be diplomatically involved in Poland in 1830. Uh, I know that he participated in some protest, but he is this kind of, it's really after the revolution that he get, that Gorowski becomes interesting because he, he's trying to play on both sides. He's trying to play the Polish nationalism movement, which is exiled in, in Paris, but then he's also trying to ingratiate himself to the Russian czar, the oppressor of Poland, <laughs> was this idea of pan-Slavism. And eventually, he's, he's this guy who can, he can just offend everybody, apparently. <laughs> uh, he eventually gets tired of Cesar. He spends a little time in Switzerland, get, encounters Mazzini, eventually comes to the U.S., and I actually, during the break, kind of re-looked at something in the book. He, he get, goes to Boston because he kind of like, he wants to be involved in kind of 
the intellectual life in the United States, the bait people. And I didn't put it in the book because it kind of wasn't fitting, but mm -hmm. I think it was Daniel Webster, where he and Webster had this kind of argument going on and they kind of postponed it a little bit to the next day. So Webster goes to Gorowski's place and apparently Gorowski is naked when <laughs> Webster comes and Webster basically is like, okay, once you put clothes on, I will debate you, but please put something on. <laughs> um, so you, Quite the and, character. And after that, he he is, and um, I mean he he's he was really good because he wrote so much. He had some really <laughs> good books that kind of gave you a good appreciation of what he felt about slavery, how he felt this being a retarding institution. He gave you a good feeling of. Um, his perceptions of the Civil War, because he wrote these three diaries in the course of the war, very critical of Lincoln. Um, your listeners will probably appreciate he called, he was, he wrote a lot of letters to McClellan with military mm -hmm. advice, even though the guy had never done anything militarily, uh, <laughs> trying to suggest of like, you should do this, you should do that, you should pursue the enemy. And McClellan never responded to any of these letters. So Gorowski eventually gets angry at the guy and calls him Napoleon. <laughs> now, the, you mentioned he, he was critical of Lincoln, and that's something you point out that almost all these figures have in common, is that Lincoln was either, either uh, an abolitionist if they were Southern, or he wasn't radical enough if they were pro-Northern. Mm -hmm. But nobody in this book likes Lincoln. That is true. You, you, I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, you're right. There is a lot of dislike of Lincoln. Um, in part, I think you're right that for some, like Gorowski and even Theodore Olshausen, the Schleswig-Holstein radical, Lincoln is too moderate. They're just looking at the guy and are like, you need to bring up emancipation. You need to free the slaves. Um, you're not conducting the war aggressive enough. Um, in part, I think there is a bit of misunderstanding that they don't mm -hmm. quite grapple, grasp fully this kind of the political difficulties that Lincoln was facing, that he couldn't just say, I'm going to emancipate slavery and end it right here in, eight, in April of 1861. I mean, God knows how the war would have gone at that time. Um, True. So I think there's a bit of misunderstanding on their part of kind of like, what the political realities are. On the other hand, this is sort of the political baggage they bring that that's just who they are. I mean, Taylor Olshausen was effectively in, eight, in 1851 when the Schleswig-Holstein revolution was in its final stage, he was ready to take on Denmark to the north, Austria and Prussia to the south, and do this, this little duchy was going to fight all of these great powers of Europe. <laughs> And it's like, are you completely divorced from reality here? This is not going to work. Um, uh, that, but it's sort of say so the, the mouse that roared. The uh, that, that would have been the the small uh, state taking on all these big powers. Now, in fact, uh, Prussia eventually does absorb Schleswig-Holstein. Uh, is eighteen sixty four? I think when that happens. 
Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And the likewise, the other independence movements or secession or separatist movements pretty much all fade away. Uh, what what do we draw from that conclusion that that um, like like the Confederate movement, these just don't work? Yes, but I think it's more difficult than that because I think when you mm-hmm. look at it, that the yes, the southern the Confederate state fails, and fails pretty soundly. But the the Confederate national identity persists. I mean, we get it with the lost cause, and we we still have all these monuments to it on on the southern landscape, slowly starting to disappear, but they're still there. And in the minds of people, it's very strong. And... In, in, in many cases, this really depends on where you are. I think with regard to Schleswig-Holstein, being absorbed eventually after some hiccups here and there into the Prussian state, it is very much like what you have with a lot of national liberals in Germany that kind of like when Bismarck violates the Constitution in 1862, but hey, in 1866, he brings about partial German unification so we forgive him for that constitutional violation because he accomplishes the larger national good. So I think that's what you really see in Schleswig-Holstein, that it is not so much that this national movement fades away, that here is actually a case where this overarching national identity, we create the German Empire, that is much more important than anything else. Um, Ireland and Hungary are being different because they eventually do get after, in Hungary's case, not so much, but in Ireland's case, very much so, after some struggle, they do get autonomy and eventually independence. Um, The Poles, well, the Poles are very unfortunate people in 19th century Europe, unfortunately. True. In that they never accomplish it, and they are left under the dictatorship of the Tsar until World War One brings them independent from the international community. So it, this book really does stimulate a lot of thought about these different uh, communities. Historians traditionally have emphasized uh, the wars of unification of the mid-19th century, of Italian unification and German unification, and to some extent the American Civil War as as the unification of the United States uh, through the crucible of warfare. But n- other, they, we haven't really looked at these from the other angle that they start out as separatist movements and that these impulses are shared and that they influence the, the war in the United States itself. So... This is uh, really a thought-provoking book. It is published by LSU Press. Uh, Listeners, if you want to go look it up, the title is Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War. The author is Niels Eichhorn, who has been our guest tonight. Niels, thank you so much for being here on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.